It's an awful sin, and it's one of these sins which has a tendency to grow, and it, oh, it grew in these brothers' lives. It gradually grew and hardened, and it became hatred, a cold, burning hatred, and it ended, of course, with this attempt on their brother's life. Be careful about sin. It always leads to more. It has a tendency to grow. It has a tendency to multiply. It's like taking a, a little a lion cub, maybe. You think of a lion cub, and it's small and cuddly and cute, and it plays on the floor, and it's harmless, really. It's got little teeth, but it doesn't really do much with them. But it grows. And if it grows, it will eventually rip the house apart. Well, so it is with sin. It will rip everything to pieces. It's destructive in its nature. It's murderous in its character. You see, what happens, it, it tends to grow. In verses 19 and 20, they begin to talk about doing something to Joseph. That's how it begins. It just begins with this talk. And you know, it's very, very dangerous very dangerous to talk about sin, to think about sin. Satan will get you to toy with sin. He'll put suggestions in your mind and you begin to, to toy with these suggestions and you roll them over in your mind just the way you roll a sweetie over in your mouth and it tastes sweet and it tastes nice perhaps. And what happens? We get used to it. We get used to the taste of it. That's how it was with these brothers. They got used to the idea. Let's do something to Joseph. What can we do? And each one of them encourages the other. If they had all kept quiet, of course, each might have thought the same thing. They might have thought, if only I could do something to him. But I better not say that, because the others will be horrified if I say it. Oh, be careful what you say. Be careful how you speak. You can embolden somebody else in doing wrong. As we share our thoughts, the sin that we once reckoned to be terrible and unspeakable and unimaginable, it becomes less terrible. We become used to it. It becomes more attractive. And what I'm saying here, it doesn't just apply to men and women out there in the world. It certainly does apply to them. It applies to the Lord's people as well. This passage shows us that sin tends to grow. But secondly, this passage shows us that sin tends to harden our hearts. Well, this is one of its effects, is it not? Verse 24 they throw him into this pit, and the pit was empty, and they close their ears to his cries. How do we know? You turn to chapter 42 and verse 21. And they're in prison. And they're saying to each other, we heard him crying. We heard him begging for his life. And we just hardened our hearts. Oh, you say, I would never do that. Oh, never say never. And what do they do, even as he's weeping and crying and begging for his life? Verse 25, they sat down to eat. <laughs> they sat down to eat. Probably the food that he brought them. 
You'd think it would stick in their throat. You'd think they wouldn't be able to swallow anything. Not a bit of it. Oh, you say, this is terrible. Yes, it is. And yet we often sin and sit down to eat. How much does it trouble us? And sit down for dinner with sins unforgiven. Without peace with God. Maybe you see this in your own life over the years. Maybe you become hardened and used to things that once upon a time wouldn't trouble you at all. Doesn't affect us in the same way. Maybe you're not a Christian and the gospel doesn't affect you in the same way. It used to affect you powerfully, it used to, to speak to you. But now it just washes over you. It's not a good sign. Not a good sign. This passage shows us that sin tends to grow. This passage shows us that sins te sin tends to harden our heart. Thirdly, this passage shows us that sin tends to make us ignore warnings. You're driving along, you come to the red light. You don't go past it, you don't go through it, or you're in trouble. Well, there's red lights in this chapter. Warnings to these men. The coat. You remember the coat that, that, uh, the, that Joseph's father gave to him? That coat was a red light. That coat was a warning. However misguided Joseph, uh, Jacob was in giving it to Joseph. We'll leave that to one side for the moment. It was a red light. It was a sign to them that, that he especially loved and regarded Joseph, and yet, and yet, despite that, they ignore it. You'd think that itself would have stopped them, made them think. No, no, you see, sin, sin makes us ignore warnings. It, it has something in it that makes us go through red lights. But there are other red lights in the passages. Reuben, for example, in verses 21 and 22, he says, let's not kill him. Let's not shed blood. You know, the Lord sends warnings, doesn't he, into our lives. Things happen. Maybe something is said in the service and it it, it's so close to the bone. It's so close that we squirm. It, it touches our consciences and yet we can ignore it. Sometimes we can harden our hearts to the point where we say, well, I'll do what I want anyway. It's very dangerous. <coughs> you never know where sin will take you. So this passage shows us that it tends to grow, that it tends to harden our hearts, that it tends to make us ignore warnings. But it also shows us that sin tends to give us false hope. Sin comes along, Satan comes along, our own wicked hearts. And the conversation is a little like this. Do this wrong thing. 
tell that lie and actually it'll help you. We've all thought that, haven't we, at times? It's to your benefit to do wrong. It gives us false hope. Well, Joseph's brother certainly thought it. If we could get rid of Joseph, life would be better. And we'll get some money from these people that we're going to sell them to. That's always Satan's way. You go back to Genesis 3, he makes false promises and he gives false hopes to Eve and he's still doing the same thing. Listen to me, go my way, follow me. Things will go well. This will get you out of this difficulty. It'll get you out of that tight corner. It might do, but at what cost? I already drew your attention to chapter 42 and they're in prison, these brothers. And they are in anguish. And they are saying, I would do anything to go back. We heard him weeping and crying and begging for his life. And we ate dinner. And now look at us, they're saying. No wonder we're in prison. They were discovering that it was a false promise and a false hope and a false dawn. They're discovering it when their conscience was red hot and when their situation was red hot as well. They are in prison in Egypt. What do they say? They say we brought this entirely on ourselves. Brought it entirely upon ourselves. And find the verse. I guess I found it. They said one to another, verse 21 of 42, We are guilty concerning our brother. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Do you regret ever listening to the voice of temptation? Oh, I'm sure, child of God, there's many a time you regret it. But we can regret it. We can go through the whole experience. And then repeat it. They wanted to get away from Joseph. He was always reminding them about sin. He was always speaking to them about God. He was always stopping them doing this, that, and the next thing. It'll be better once it's gone. And many, oh, many's the man, many's the woman. Many's the teenager who thought just that. If I can get away from the gospel, if I can get away from the influences of the church, life will be better. And many's a prodigal found himself in the far country, realizing slowly but surely I wasn't actually better at all. This passage, oh, it reveals to us much about sin. But secondly, this passage, it reassures us about God. It reveals to us about sin, but it reassures us about God. Now, maybe you're thinking, how does it reassure us? Isn't God strangely absent from the whole thing? Where is God? 
in verse 18 or verse 19 or, or verse 20. Where is God when things go wrong? Why doesn't he warn Joseph in a dream? He was well able to do that. A dream or some other way. Why doesn't he deliver Joseph from the pit? Why does he send an angel? He doesn't even need to be an angel. Why doesn't the Lord allow Reuben's plan in verse 22 to develop? His plan is not to kill him. It's, there's something about delaying tactic. We'll put him into this into this pit and so on. and uh, Put him in the pit and, and, and maybe he's going to get him out later. We, we see the way that develops later. Reuben returns in verse 29 to the pit and, and he sees distressed. That looks like a way out. Why doesn't the Lord let that plan work? Why does he allow things to reach the point in verse 29 where Reuben comes to the pit and it's too late? They've sold him. By verse 28, he's already in, he's on his way to Egypt on the slave market. It seems utterly hopeless. Joseph's never going to get out of this, you see. Never. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to, to the Lord's people? Why does the Lord not intervene quickly, immediately, when bad things begin to happen? Well, I'm sticking to what I said. This passage reassures us about God. God is active. Just look under the surface and you'll see it. First of all, he stops the plan to kill him there and then. Come now therefore, verse 20, let us slay him and cast him into some pit. They were ready to do it there and then. But the Lord stops them. Reuben has to disagree. Reuben has to come up with an alternative plan. And they have to agree to Reuben's plan. How can you say the Lord isn't here? The Lord is here. He's just saved his life at a crucial moment. He's moved things providentially. Just that little bit around. Just because you can't see the Lord's hand at work doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. And then along come the Ishmaelites. Well, they have to pass there and then. They couldn't come the day before. They couldn't come a week later. They have to be there that day, that time. See, the Lord is shifting all the pieces into place. Reuben is part of it. And these Ishmaelites who had never heard of God Almighty, they are a part of it. And their travel plans. 
and their travel plans that day and that week were all ordered by Almighty God to bring them to that spot that day. These cars that are passing along the road there, all part of the purposes of God. And the folk in these cars, is the last thing in their mind. But there's a reason for every single little bit of it. God executing his decrees. In his works of creation, yes, but in his works of providence. And we don't see a fraction of it. And again, even when the Ishmaelites come, Judah has to make the suggestion. Judah says in verse 26, What profit is if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him. Where did that come from? It came from the overarching purposes and mysterious providence of God. Lord wasn't responsible for Judah's wicked plan. We're not saying that, and, and you know we're not saying that. But we are bowing before Almighty God, and we are seeing the way he is taking even these men with their twisted motives, and he's bringing it together. The rest have to agree with the plan. We're going to sing in a moment in Psalm 37. Where the psalmist says, The wicked man doth watch the just, and seeketh him to slay. You know what the next verse says? Yet him the Lord will not forsake, nor leave him in his hands. Here it is. It's all working together to fulfill God's plan. And that plan involves Joseph going to Egypt. Now Joseph doesn't know why. The Lord has his purpose. Because there's dreams to fulfill. And there's a famine to survive. And there's a Goshen to be filled. Ah, oh, this passage reassures us about God. <coughs> that he is watching, that he is preparing, that he is providing. And as we look back in the later chapters, that's so clear, isn't it? This passage, ah, it reveals to us much about sin. This passage reassures us much about God. Finally, this passage reminds us much about Jesus. It's impossible to read this passage and not be reminded of Jesus. He too faced hatred. He too faced enemies. Though he had done them no wrong, those who were determined to be rid of him, irked, annoyed by his holiness. Joseph is stripped and degraded. 
And years later, those who hurt him are fed by him in Egypt and saved from death. <clears throat> and we read in Matthew 27 of Jesus too stripped and degraded, a helpless prisoner, so that sinners might be saved and pardoned. They could both say what we sang in Psalm 109. About sin coming in, they did beset me round about with words of hateful spite, and thought to them no cause I gave against me they did fight. They for my love became my foes, but I me set to pray. Evil for good, hatred for love to me they did repay. Ah, Joseph loved them. That's what sent him on that errand to find them. But poor Joseph, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But oh, what love, what greater love than Joseph led the eternal Son of God into this poor broken world to seek and to save them that are lost. And what a reception he got. What a cold, cold reception. Crucify him. Crucify him. And sitting down, they watched him there. Sitting down, they watched Joseph there. Begging for his life. And centuries later, Sitting down, others watched our Joseph of the New Testament there. And again, again in the gospel, heaven doesn't stop at stepping. He's not delivered. He's not delivered from Pilate. Though he intimates that he could be. Do you not understand, says Pilate, the haughty Roman? Do you not understand my power? Oh, he says, what power? <laughs> You're not in the driving seat at all, Pilate. Doesn't step in when he's under the hand of Herod, doesn't even intervene at the cross itself. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. The witty comment of the moment. But just as with Joseph, and more, all more so, far infinitely more, there was a plan a plan of redemption for those who had shamefully abused him and countless others beside. Oh, it reminds us of Jesus. So even as we see our sin in their ugliness in this passage and confess our sin by God's grace, repent. Even as we 
are reassured afresh about God and his purposes. We are taken as we must be to the cross and to Christ. To his grace, to his purposes, to his readiness to save. It reminds us about Jesus. And as we come this Lord's Day morning, we need to hear about sin. And we need to hear about God and his sovereign purposes. But that's not enough. We need to hear about Christ. And he's here on every page. But you know, there's one more point I want to make, and I'll finish with this. The brothers thought that this was the end of it. They go home, and it's in the past, and it stays there. And they make this little pact one with another. I won't tell if you don't. Although it was always a fragile pact. Always the, the question, what if somebody... Say something. A casual remark one day. But anyway, they thought, well, that's the end of it. That's not how things work in a moral universe. God brings things round, and one day they have to face Joseph again. I, he said, I'm, I'm Joseph, your brother. And yeah, we read that passage, we read that verse, and honestly, you can just feel the very hair in your neck standing on end, can't you? Well, how was it for them? And one day we will have to face Christ, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, and the question is this, will we meet him as a friend and a saviour with our sins forgiven? Will we meet him like the Apostle Paul as he speaks of the one who loved me and gave himself for me? Or will we meet him as the one we refused and rejected, whose mercy we spurned, whose salvation we declined? It reveals to us much about sin. It reassures us much about God. It reminds us much about Jesus. May God bless his word. Let us unite in prayer. <laughs> Eternal Lord, we praise thy name that the word of God as many warnings to us about sin, help us to, to heed them well and to understand even what this passage is teaching us about sin. We give thanks for the sovereign purposes of God. Even when we can't see them, we, we trust in him. And we give thanks above all else that passage after passage sends us ultimately to Christ, the Joseph of the New Testament. Our Lord, we pray that we would see much of him 
in his grace and in his glory today. And on this day when others remember and when the world remembers, our nation at least remembers, those who have stood in conflict, we remember as we do every Lord's Day, the one who stood in the conflict, the captain, <coughs> the captain of the host, who stood in battle and who triumphed in battle. Oh, how worthy he is of being remembered. Turn our thoughts to him and forgive us our sins, especially in holy things, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we turn again to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, we'll sing just now at verse 29. We'll sing 29 to 33, these three stanzas, Psalm 37 and a 29, the just inherit shall the land, and ever in it dwell the just man's mouth, doth wisdom speak, his tongue doth judgment tell, in his heart the law is of his God, his steps slide not away, the wicked man doth watch the just, and seeketh him to slay, yet him the Lord will not forsake, and so on. These three stanzas, the just inherit, shall the land. The just God willing, the evening service at the usual time of 6.30, the prayer meeting on Wednesday, on Thursday rather, at half past seven, that will be taken by Mr. Tim Nixon. Services next Lord's Day at the usual times, 11 and 6.30, and they will be taken by the Reverend John Angus Gillis. 
All being well, it is hoped that those who are listed on the current cleaning rota would be prepared to continue for 2023. However, if you are unable or unwilling to continue, or alternatively you wish to add your name to the rota, please speak with Catherine Martin. And these, like all else, are subject to the appointing of the Lord will stand. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship and communion of God the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.